You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. in my life, but never, never anything like this. Welcome back to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. This is Annie Rose Malamut, and today I'm here with my friend Cooper Mall, and we're going to be talking about the 1999 movie Eyes Wide Shut. We're talking about this movie as part of my anti-Christmas spectacular month, because <laughs> uh, this is a firmly a Christmas movie, one of my favorite Christmas movies. So before we start, Cooper, can you say a little bit about who you are and what, what you do, what you're about? Absolutely. Um, my professional background is in library science, specifically uh, interested in archives and preservation. Um, however, my focus of uh, interest in general is uh, kind of exploring queer identity and its intersections with media and culture and, uh, you know, everything from fine art to film to fashion. Those are things that I find uh, that are constantly stimulating me. Amazing. So you're the perfect person to talk about Eyes Wide <laughs> So, Cooper, I kind of reached out to you about doing this movie, um, because you had been posting about it on Instagram and I've been wanting to do this movie since I started the podcast, always planned on doing it in December. So I was thrilled that you were posting about it. When did you first see this movie and what, what did you feel when you saw this movie? I first saw this movie. I want to say it was, I was probably 17. Um, and I remember being, captivated by the title of the film from a very young age from seeing it on a, a marquee at the local theater in my hometown um really just kind of um feeling confused about what that meant to have eyes wide shut that play on words was something that really captivated me uh and i remember really wanting to see the movie just based off the title having no idea what it was about um, and then when I was around 17, I rented it from my local video store and, uh, watched it with a friend of mine. That was my, my first time seeing it. And at the time, I think this was in my, like, alter, you know, my 17 year old wanting to be very alternative and interesting. Uh, I found the movie to be like very provocative and avant-garde, um, but having watched it again, it really does not um, hold up uh, in 
does not withstand the test of time in in certain ways, I think. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah, it's certainly less provocative than it was in 1999. Yes, it feels very confined to tropes of the 20th century. I think think it does a very good job encapsulating 20th century ideas of sex and sexuality and then is kind of like the bookend to it. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, Yeah, I on my end, I saw this movie probably around I think I was younger. I think I was like, honestly, 13. And I saw this with my at the time, my best friend and we were both he was gay. I was gay (laughs) and we rented this movie from Blockbuster because we were like, ooh, eyes wide shut. And like we'd seen the trailer and all that stuff. And we watched it (laughs) really late at night and um, he hated it. He was like, this is so slow and boring. And I was like, I love this. I love this movie. So and I've. It's interesting because I I love erotic thrillers and this movie has been kind of pushed about like people. There's debate about if this is an erotic thriller or not. Uh, So it's it's interesting to look at it that way. So let's talk about it. Um, Obviously directed by Stanley Kubrick and starring Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, who were at the time married. If I'm if I'm getting that right. Yes, they were they were married at the time. Yes. And so that was like a big pull with the movie. Yeah. Uh, it was released in nineteen ninety-nine, but was on Kubrick's mind for most of his creative life. There was years of pre-production, production and post-production. Uh, The making of the film was a strain on Kubrick, who was 70 years old at the time, and he died a week after he showed it to Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise and Warner Brothers executives. Yes, I was able to gather the same information that this this was his last film. Yes. And... And, Oh, go ahead. And that he had been... um, imagining having a film that was explored sexuality more than his other films that was i think a, a goal of his that he, this fine he finally realized in this in this film yeah and he felt that it was his best work oh that's interesting and yeah he he was very proud of it i know that it is based off a novella um called tromel i believe that was uh, yes. written in the 1920s, but I'm not too familiar with the the story there. Yeah, so it, the the English title is Dream Story, and the author is Arthur uh, Schnitzler, and it was published in 1926. And Kubrick actually obtained the rights to the novella in the 1960s. So I've read the novella. Um, you know, it's very similar in a lot of ways, and there are like a, key, a few key differences. Like, obviously, the novella takes place in fin de siècle Vienna, whereas this film takes place in present day New York City. 
So that's like the huge, the main difference. Kubrick actually initially was going to make the film in uh, 20th century Vienna uh, in in the 1970s, and it was going to star Woody Allen. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, because the dream story, the protagonist is Jewish, and the Nick Nightingale character is also Jewish, and it it's really <clears throat> sorry again kind of a cold uh it's really uh about that that's a huge that's a really important part of the novella uh like for example in the film tom cruise experiences homophobic harassment but in mm-hmm. the novella it's anti-semitic harassment oh that's interesting yeah and kubrick was jewish and that was you know, and the uh, Frederick Raphael, who was the co-writer on the screenplay, is also Jewish, and they like he wanted to keep it Jewish, but Kubrick kind of insisted that they they change it. Um, so the project was revived in 1994 when Kubrick hired Frederick Raphael to revise the script, the script, and they decided to set it in the present day. Uh, like I said, there's many parallels between actually Schnitzler as a person and Kubrick. Uh, Schnitzler worked on Dream Story for 30 years, while Kubrick claimed to have worked on Eyes Wide Shut for 30 years. And they both died at 70 after completing these, like, huge stories. And both of men were Jewish and sons of educated doctors. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, and Kubrick frequently re- actually removed references to to the Jewishness of characters in the novels he adapted. Uh, like I said, Frederick Raphael wanted to keep the Jewish background, but Kubrick disagreed and removed details that would identify the characters as Jewish. And I would say, actually, in the film, they're staunchly not Jewish. <laughs> like They're very much wasps, in a way. And... Kubrick determined that Bill should be like a Harrison Fordish goy and created the surname of Harford as an allusion to to Harrison Ford. Mm. Uh, Schnitzler was a notorious adulterer and womanizer who apparently kept a record of every orgasm he'd ever had. And <laughs> the way that he wrote on sexuality really appealed to Kubrick uh, which makes sense because, as you were saying, Eyes Wide Shut is a very sexual. It's it's a film that explores sexuality and it's very erotically charged. Mm-hmm. And that's so interesting to me that he kept this log of his sexual encounters, whereas in the film, and we'll get to this, Tom Cruise never actually actualizes any fantasy that he is seeking he can never bring himself to achieve orgasm or even achieve the act so i think that's very interesting yes he's very stymied Mm -hmm. which is the it is the same in the novella um very much about like unfulfilled desires the core story is the same as the novella like there's this couple there's this married couple and they go to a party and uh the wife kind of they have an argument and the wife kind of reveals that you know she's fantasized about other people and the main character feels very emasculated and goes on this dream-like journey mm-hmm. uh 
the film production lasted 400 days, holding the Guinness World Record for longest film production. Wow. Right. (laughs) And because of Kubrick's fear of flying, the film was shot in England, where he was living, and Greenwich Village was recreated in heavy detail on a soundstage. Wow, I would have never known that it was... It was not Greenwich Village. It looks exactly like Greenwich Village. Yeah, that's that's remarkable. It really is. It's um, like a huge feat. Uh, Harper's film critic Lee Siegel believes the film's recurring motif is the Christmas tree because it symbolizes the way that compared with the everyday reality of sex and emotion, our fantasies of gratification are pompous and solemn in the extreme for desire is like Christmas. It always promises more than it delivers. <laughs> that, that is, uh, that seems very apropos. Yes. <laughs> Cause there's been a lot of, uh, debate about, the actual meaning of Christmas in the film. And a lot of people have kind of chalked it up to Stanley Kubrick's kind of like anal, like retentive obsession with lighting and uh, muted lighting and the Christmas lights are this perfect way to, to achieve that. But yes, I, you know, to me watching it again, Christmas did not like, it didn't it doesn't feel like christmas plays a big character in the film as much as um i think the idea how christmas evokes these two primary colors which are red and and green whereas i um eyes wide shut really invokes the colors blue and red if you see them you see them throughout the film and i kind of read that as blue is a color that represents jealousy and dominates a lot of the shots when bill is obsessed with alice's sexuality whereas the color red is very much associated with passion and death in the film and it's seen in shots where in the beginning shots where alice is undressing or the scene when with mandy overdosing um the orgy scene those types of things so there are a lot of color really captures the film in the same way i think color um capture some of conjure some of our ideas of christmas as well Mm, that's interesting yeah and it's it's just interesting that it's set at christmas which is like the apex of christian holidays and it's this novel was originally about jewish people i don't know i just find that very interesting and must be obviously intentional i mean kubrick was extremely detail-oriented about his film so I feel like we could find meaning in this over and over and over again in different ways so uh, let's get into talking about the the plot of the yeah, film. absolutely so we open with a Shostakovich waltz and we immediately have this ass shot of Nicole Kidman <laughs> Who's so so beautiful in this movie? Oh, I, that's it's just angelic. Angelic, yes. And I also have a note here that there's like this shot of her on the toilet wiping, which I always love when we see people on the toilet in movies because it's just not common. Uh, it's not common, and to see to see that level of. 
uh, comfortability and intimacy with a partner. Yes. That they can share the same space together while doing something that we typically do in private. Right. Is telling of their relationship. Yes. We meet the Harfords, this wealthy white couple uh, with one daughter named Helena, I think, right? Yes. Living in Manhattan and on the Upper West Side. And they're getting ready for a Christmas party. It's Alice and Bill Harford. And Alice has on this beautiful dress. And we learn that Bill is a doctor, obviously a very well-to-do doctor. And they go to this very elaborate, beautiful Christmas party at this, like, New York mansion. And they don't know anyone there. Uh, so they're immediately like, like you were in those shots of the domestic space that they're in. They're immediately really actually a united front in the beginning. And Mm -hmm. that will break apart very soon. As soon as Bill, there's a shot of the piano player that, and Bill recognizes him and they went, that, that they went to medical school together. That's the next thing that happens. And then they're immediately kind of rent asunder for the rest of the film. Yes, and and pulled away by, by different, um, for lack of different attractions. Yes, and Nick Nightingale is the piano player, and Bill goes to say hi to Nick, and they go off and have a drink, and Nick explains that he dropped out of medical medical school and became a pianist, and he tells Bill to visit him where he is working at the Sonata Cafe, in Greenwich Village. And Alice is now alone, and this gray-haired man is creeping on her, and he, like, steals her wine and drinks it right in front of her face, and introduces himself as Sanders Faust. Yes, and he makes sure to denote his ethnicity. Yes. And he says, I'm Hungarian, and she asserts that she is American. Yes. What do you make of that? I found that perhaps that was a way for her to delineate what her values were and that she had this kind of Anglican American values where she has, you know, that's her saying, I have a husband and I have an American family and going to disrupt that that's mm. my kind of norman rockwell painting kind of life that i have right and he's that like i will indulge in this moment with you but at the end of the day that's who i am right and he's like this sultry european influence uh mm-hmm. and he, he says did you ever read the latin poet ovid on the art of love so yes. he's immediately like really seducing her and Alice, like you said, she asserts that she's married and her and Sander dance. And we also learn that Alice is unemployed, but she used to manage an art gallery in Soho. Mm-hmm. And she's like very immediately drunk. She's like, yes, I... go ahead. Yeah, she's very much transferred into this intoxicating ethereal figure. Yes. I kind of thought she also might be like pretending to be more drunk than she actually was. Mm-hmm. As a way to sort of let go in this moment. 
and Alice catches Bill flirting with these two hot young women as she's dancing with Sander, which kind of encourages her to keep doing what she's doing. Mm -hmm. And Sander says, don't you think one of the charms of marriage is that it makes deception a necessity for both parties? So one of the huge themes in this movie is adultery and it's immediately happening there. Uh, and Sander asks Alice why she would want to be married at all. Uh, he also like kind of tries to use like feministish kind of rhetoric to seduce her, like saying women used to get married so that they could have sex. Uh, and then they would have sex with anyone they wanted. And yes, there's very much throughout the whole film a link of love to patriarchy and desire to freedom, mm. which I think is is very interesting and introduced for the first time kind of in that in that scene. Absolutely. And because Alice's desire, the way that her desire manifests is so different than Bill's. Like Bill's is, it's like, I have to prove that I'm this man. And Alice is like, it's purely about actual sexual desire. Yes. And she almost sees fantasy as a necessity to keep relationships afloat whereas we learn throughout the film he sees them as detrimental to relationship right yes he's actually kind of a prude and i think he's trying to prove that he's not throughout the whole movie uh so alice sander keeps kind of like trying to encourage alice to cheat with him uh, and the models now we see bill the, these women are flanking bill and they're trying to seduce him uh, but Bill is pulled aside for an emergency. I also noticed that the Christmas decorations of this party are just really beautiful. Like this suffused light. Everybody just looks really sexy in it. Yes, there is this this drastic shift between opulence and kind of um, decrepitness throughout the film. Oh, Yeah. And Bill walks upstairs to the room where uh, this guy, Victor Ziegler, who's the host of the party, is. And there's this na- beautiful naked woman passed out in a chair. And he says to Bill, she was shooting up and she had a bad reaction. And at this point, I was also like, isn't Ziegler's wife here? Like, he just introduced them to his wife at the beginning of the party. So, and then now that I'm thinking about it more deeply, I'm, there's also, there's a fidelity element going on with them as well. Like, perhaps this is understood between them. Uh, we learn that the naked woman's name is Mandy. And we just kind of assume automatically that this woman is a sex worker. Yes. And there's also this very interesting painting of a naked pregnant woman in the room that Ziegler is in front of. Right behind her. And the, and the room is very dominated by the color red. Yes. Which is kind of the second time you see that color really dominating the, the space. And it, in this case, I think it, it represents... It, it's used kind of as a representation of an association with death 
And I think this is kind of the first time, you know, I see one of the perspectives on sex in the film is, is sex as death. And I think that's the first time that that theme, this theme, that theme is introduced in the film. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Love that reading. Uh, so meanwhile, Alice is still dancing with Sander, who's trying to get her to visit Ziegler's sculpture gallery of Renaissance bronzes upstairs to fuck, I assume, in the in the bronze room. And back upstairs, Mandy has come to and Bill lectures her that she's lucky to be alive and that she can't do that again. And it was. I couldn't tell in this moment if if this was kind or condescending. I I just couldn't make up my mind about it. Like he Bill is very good. Tom Cruise is actually great in this role and he's very good at kind of like he's a doctor and he's this rich white man, so people listen to him. So and he's very good at like being very condescending in this very kind way where which is very typical of people like that where maybe you wouldn't understand at first that it was condescension yes it's he knows best yes and you just take you just believe that mm-hmm. <clears throat> alice turns sander down and i have a note here that said that says god knows why because uh, seems like it would be a good time <laughs> and they now we get this one of my favorite scenes which is Alice and Bill back at after their night and they are in front of a mirror naked and the the song is baby did a bad bad thing which is in the trailer <laughs> and Alice keeps looking at her reflection clearly kind of conflicted about something and they have sex in front of this mirror oh also this film was originally supposed to have an x rating uh and it you know and kubrick never shied away from that like a clockwork orange had an x rating and he didn't he didn't care uh but for some reason they really wanted this film to have an r rating i read it's so interesting that would even have an X rating because for a film that's so preoccupied with sex, there isn't a lot of sex in the film. Yeah, I think anybody who's, you know, would see it that way is really missing the point. It's really more about like stifled desire than yes, it is about absolutely. actual desire. So the next day at the office, Bill is examining a woman's breast very dispassionately. And we see more naked Nicole, who's occupied with her daughter at home. Her nudity in this film is very, like, domestic. It's very functional. Mm-hmm. Their apartment is everything. Like, just everything you would want out of, like, a beautiful Upper West Side apartment. Yes, absolutely. And at night back home, another one of my favorite scenes, Bill and Alice unwind together smoking weed and Alice is in this like white cami panty situation with no bra. Yes, and you can it's very sheer. Yeah, you so. could see her nipples. Yes. Their stoned acting is the funniest thing. Oh yes, the there's a lot it, it starts very fun and sexy and then it really goes into um a major gaslighting dynamic. Yes. He tells her the pot is making her aggressive and she 
one of my favorite lines in the movie is when she says it's it's not the pot it's you i love that and alice is questioning bill like that like you said it starts very sexy and fun and devolves into this argument which is you know triggering that's a very common thing that happens yes and alice questions bill about the two girls at the party and asks if he fucked them when he went upstairs because she didn't know what he was doing and he bill is very good about doctor patient confidentiality like he doesn't act he doesn't tell his wife about this incident that he had upstairs and yes he takes himself very seriously yes bill denies that he was hitting on the girls at all and questions Alice about the man she was dancing with. And Alice gets offended because Bill says it's understandable that someone would want to fuck his wife. And Alice is offended at the idea that a man would only want to talk to her because he wants to fuck her. And then he turns it back on Bill that be, that that means that he must have wanted to fuck those models. And this that's when Bill says, this pot is making you aggressive. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, one thing I really do find this monologue is kind of Nicole Kidman's shining moment in the film. She is not in the film that much. Right. Um, and one thing I kind of found where I'm, I'm asking myself um, more about the component of any kind of, you know, in a, in a lot of Kubrick films, you know, The Shining, the film takes place within the, the male character's imagination. Um and in the moment where we get to have a brief inside look at the female character's imagination, she's under the influence of a substance mm. um, when she kind of invokes feminism and, and her power in her womanhood. Um, and she's kind of stumbling over her words and she's laughing and she's slurring almost as if her ideas are inherently nonsensical. And that's something that really stood out to me. Um, yeah, that's interesting, because I never thought about the actual role of Pot in this scene. And you're I right. That, that was, that was something that really stood out to me, is that, that when she does kind of step into her power, it's, it's belittled in a way yes yeah that's a really good point and they have this so the, the essentially the core of this argument is that bill admits that he thinks women don't think about sex as, as, in the same way as men and that they're more interested in commitment and alice collapses laughing and you know says if you men only knew and alice gets pissed off that bill has never been jealous of her so he says and she tells this story of Cape Cod. This time they went on vacation to Cape Cod and she wanted to cheat on him with a naval officer she saw in the hotel and he who glanced at her for only a second and it set her completely on fire. And she thought of him the whole time, even while her and Bill were having sex and she was ready to give up everything if he wanted her, if only for one night. And she also says this line at the same time you were dearer to me than ever and at the moment my love for you was both tender and sad like uh, yes that is a, it's a very chilling moment and like the score in this in this particular scene is so 
I'm like getting chills just me like, too. It up in it's my mind. so good. It is so uh, claustrophobic. Yes. And you know, I, I thought another interesting part of this too is that it also conjures this idea that for a woman to have what she wants, she has to give up everything. Yes. Whereas a man can kind of always have whatever he wants. Yes. And and that is something that this by this point in the film, which is only what like fifteen minutes into it, we've already like conjured up this like hysteria, grief, love, sex, and 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 a lot about class as well, which I hopefully we'll get into later. Oh, absolutely. And Bill's face is one of abject horror and rage as he she's telling him this. Like it's never even occurred to him that his wife would have desires outside of him. Yes, and he sees this moment to me in a way that you know she's describing fantasy which in a way that she's like this is a very normal thing um and he's seeking it and understanding it as punishment yes yeah he thinks i think he really feels like alice is saying this to get back at him whereas she's kind of just revealing part of who she is and wants him to understand this and Bill gets this call that this guy, Lou Nathanson, one of his patients, has died. So he takes a cab ride over, and on the, in the, on the ride, he imagines Alice cheating with the naval officer. And this is one of, the, this is the first of many sequences where he sees Alice and this naval officer in this, like, blue-tinted scene where they're fucking. Yes. <laughs> and... Bill goes to this, like, upscale apartment where Lou Nathanson has died and talks to his daughter, Marion, who is an older woman, you know, older-ish, like, in her 40s, obviously distressed but composed, and she talks about her boyfriend, Carl, and Bill is kind and courteous to her, and Marion tries to kiss Bill, and she tells him that she loves him. And Bill tries to tell her that she's just upset. And Carl shows up and he kind of looks like Bill. What do you like? What do we make of this scene? This is one of the first many first of many like unfulfilled desire scenes. This scene is more of a is more of a, a difficult one for me to was one of the more difficult ones for me to kind of theorize um but i think it's the first kind of we're introduced to the the figure of a mask in in the film later on um the mask the the actual depiction of masked people or whatever and i think this is kind of the first time bill is telling her you're putting on you're acting out of grief is this mask that you're putting on that is allowing you to act in this way. And to me, that's the first time we think of like the figurative um, mask, but in in a way too, this is also one of the first times in the film where we see death is always one step away. In this, in, in this particular scene, it is a physical step away, 
whereas in the other ones it's it's more of a um uh analogy right and that's really that tie between sex and death that you were talking about earlier yes. uh and how death also brings out lust in people so bill leaves and he's wandering these beautiful neon new york streets and he's haunted by images of alice again with the naval officer and this is when he gets harassed by a group of homophobic frat boys who taunt him and call him a faggot and they say go back to san francisco where you belong which kind of cracked me out (laughs) this and this further emasculates him like he's not feeling good about his status as a man and this is in the in the book this is anti-semitic harassment like i said Hmm. yeah that's interesting because in the in the with it as homophobic harassment you can read it as here's another example of the dangers of sexual transgression yes whereas maybe that doesn't come through in the book uh with regard you know when it's anti-semitism being invoked well it's interesting because the figure of the jew as um many marginalized identities are conceived by like the western heteropatriarchal imagination is also one of like perverse sexuality so i i think there actually is some of that It, it just doesn't maybe translate as much in our modern day as it would in like fin de siècle vienna like that would be more understood then that that is what's happening there Mm -hmm. uh whereas like now jewish people are so integrated into mainstream society that it just wouldn't translate like that in modern day so kubrick had to kind of change it to homophobic harassment because that is something that we still we we understand the figure of the gay man as sexually transgressive Mm -hmm. and it's it's an also the timeliness of this is very interesting too because the film is set in the late 90s where there is still a lot of danger looming around gay sexuality yes yeah so I mean this now that I'm thinking about this and why Kubrick changed the the characters from Jewish to these to who they are I mean that actually makes a lot of sense to me like it just wouldn't it wouldn't translate like that in in 1999 Mm -hmm. so Bill is approached by this woman in a fur coat and hat who asks if he'd like to have a little fun and invites him to her place so she is a sex worker sex work is also a huge theme in this film uh it is again sexual transgression for yes, sure and i also saw this as the, uh, the second perspective on sex is, is sex as commerce was something i also yes. pick up on a lot yeah film. sex is a trans as a transaction mm-hmm. uh her name is domino i forget when they say her name but her name is definitely domino you do not learn it until later into the film as far as i'm concerned right and she leads him to her 
broken down Greenwich Village apartment, which you know, it's, also, it's kind of a nice apartment, but whatever. And <laughs> with a, this tiny, sad Christmas tree in the corner. I'm such a New Yorker. I'm like, how much does she pay for this apartment? <laughs> I, I love her purple outfit that she has on. And they start to negotiate money and what they're going to do. And Bill says, what do you recommend? Like, he's such a noob. Like, yes, he, he has no idea what to do in this situation. And meanwhile, Alice is at home smoking and watching TV. And Bill and Domino kiss uh, very sensually while this, like, jazz music plays. And they are interrupted by Alice calling Bill's cell phone. And Bill is interrupted from committing infidelity for a second time this night. And he like he could go on with her, but because he doesn't go home or anything. But just the the call from the wife like stops him from fulfilling this. And he gives her 150 anyway. And you know, for her troubles. And she tries to refuse, which is extremely unrealistic. (laughs) I was like, yeah, sure. A man obviously wrote this. Bill passes the Sonata Cafe where he remembers Nick is playing and he decides to go inside. There's these beautiful Christmas lights everywhere. And Nick finishes his set and sits with Bill and they have a drink and Nick tells Bill about this gig he has that starts at 2 a.m. And he never knows the address and he has to play blindfolded. But one time the blindfold wasn't on so well and he could see beautiful naked women everywhere. And Bill is extremely intrigued. I don't know. It's just kind of interesting because I don't see Bill as a sexual person, which I guess is how it is this intentional. Uh, but he's interested in this. And Nick gets this call in the middle of the conversation and writes down the word Fidelio on a napkin, which he says is a Beethoven opera, but it's also the word fidelity. (laughs) And he tells Bill that this is the password for this party. And Bill implores Nick to give him the address. And Nick tells Bill he can't get in unless he has a costume and a mask. So now we get to another extremely bizarre scene in the movie where yes, and this what was what's interesting is is right before the the mask is discussed in domino's apartment there are masks all over the wall right foreshadowing this next phase in the film right and domino a domino is a kind of venetian mask i read Oh, wow, that's very interesting. Yeah, so a lot of mask (laughs) illusions. Uh, Bill goes to Rainbow Fashions, which I thought Rainbow Fashions might also be an allusion to queerness uh, in a way. And in the beginning of the film, the two women invite Bill to go where the rainbow ends. Right, yes, that's right. So here we are seeing the rainbow again. Yes, was interesting to me yeah like the end of the rainbow the uh you know where you know wizard of oz ish kind of imagery um this surly eastern european man lets him into rainbow fashions and uh bill agrees to pay him two hundred dollars over the rental price if he'll allow him to rent a costume 
and he lets him in and bill requests a, a, a tux a black coat with a hood and a mask and this guy's name this eastern european guy is millich and he catches his daughter played by lily sobieski having sex with two men who are in drag and Lily Sobieski uh, he's very Millage is very upset by this and is like chastising her and you know calling her depraved and all that and Lily whispers something to Bill and we don't know what she said mm-hmm. the scene is crazy to me I don't know it's just like so weird it is and it it really I think highlights this kind of similar to the two young girls that approach Bill at the party in the beginning is that he he is somebody who is a it's almost as if it's a mystery to him that he is being approached for sex yes and he's like surprised sexual odyssey is extremely manic and and full of anxiety and, and revulsion in a way that is very different than what you see in, in a typical um, male character in a film. Yes, it's like anxiety is the perfect word. It's extremely anxiety ridden. It doesn't seem like this quest to have a genuine sexual experience. It feels like a very kind of prudish, neurotic man kind of you know trying to get back at his wife for having this sexual fantasy yes i find him seeking it only as means of punishment and it's it is interesting to me that in the film we can really only see um it is only through like male fantasy can we see and understand the sexual insinuations and it's always through his gaze, which is just it. It is so ridden with anxiety, and um, you know, unconscious disgust. Yes, yeah, the disgust is an important element because, ra- like, he's not intrigued by Lily Sobieski, like, whispering something in his ear. Like, he is, but he's also horrified by this situation like by his dis- yes it's almost he has this who me kind of attitude yes and the way we see women through his gaze as like these really like we like you were saying we we see everything through his lens so we see women as like very intimidating and mysterious so bill takes a cab to this cryptic ass party and he continues to be haunted by visions of alice with the naval officer and it looks like they go all the way up to westchester or something in this cab because there's trees now and they arrive at a gated mansion and bill asks the cab driver to wait for him and he's greeted by two men and he gives them the password and Bill gets in the house and he puts on this Venetian mask 
and his cloak and he enters this baroque chamber where some kind of rite is being performed where there's a man in red everyone's in masks and there's a man in red standing in a circle of cloaked mask figures performing this kind of ritual and the figures discard their cloaks and reveal that they are beautiful naked women in masks and black thongs <laughs> it's very like illuminati-ish and yes this is like how i pictured nexium in my mind oh my god it's so much worse it's so much <laughs> less cool than this <laughs> it's like did you see the lifetime movie about nexium by the way no i did not okay i watched it twice it's <laughs> the worst thing ever i highly recommend people watch it i, I will absolutely look into it <laughs> so the women disperse one by one and they they choose a masked man from the crowd and lead him off and a woman with an elaborate headdress chooses bill and walks away with him and warns him that he's in danger and that he must leave and before she could say anything else another man intercepts and leads this woman away so bill walks through the mansion and he sees that everyone is in masks and everyone is fucking and i've always kind of felt that this was pretty reserved and boring for an orgy (laughs) no i agree It's, it's um it's very compartmentalized yes it doesn't feel collective it's very dry like there's in my caligula episode um i was talking about how um this writer defines pornography as opposed to stuff like this as uh, pornography is is wet and there's penetration whereas this is like so dry like it's just very it's like a it's mise-en-scene it's not like it's, it's not particularly erotic like like you were saying very compartmentalized Yes, and what's interesting, too, is, you know, this is where you really get to see, I think, in this orgy scene, that although the film is progressive and interesting and, and experimental in some ways, um, we still kind of see the trope that film reduces, like, all types of emotions to sex as, like, a single origin. So, like, romantic films or higher-brow films see sex as personal bonding whereas a person uh, like a por- pornographic film would show kind of more anonymous desire and you see a blending of that here with with the masks but then also with that constant theme of that it- wanting to achieve that personal bond so there's kind of a a blending here of those those two different ideas of what sex is in film oh interesting yeah, and it's, I mean, it, it's also, uh, I mean, the people's bodies who are on display are all these thin white women. It's yes. not a single non-thin white body, which I think is very intentional. Like, it's thinness and whiteness here. The thin white female body is equated with upper class, like, and, uh, like kind of stymied desire like nothing is it's it 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 represents the the thin white female body represents the apex of sexual desire but it also represents how sexual desire isn't functioning as pure desire it's functioning as power and Mm -hmm. transaction and 
I just found that really interesting. Like, I don't think this is supposed to be a scene that where you're like horny for it. No, absolutely not. I, I about is you know we do see these very uh, stereotypical um, beauty standards in this scene, and but because we are seeing everything through the lens of of Tom Cruise, who has this very limited scope of sexuality. I was thinking too, could this scene also be visually reinforcing men's limited vision of women as objects? Mm. Um, that's, that's something that I, I'm getting out of that, out of this scene as well Is could there be something more robust and less stereotypical about this, um, that, that, the male gaze is so limited right like is it exploring the male gaze or is it is it just the male gaze that's exactly it, it's uh i think it goes in and out honestly uh I think, yeah i think the film goes in and out of that a lot many different times in different ways then i think that's what makes it different than kubrick's films before mm, interesting so Another woman tries to get Bill to go off with her, and but she's stopped by the other woman in the headdress from before, who again leads Bill away and urges him to leave. And Bill tries to get her to go with him and take off her mask. He really fancies himself as a savior and as of women. Uh, that, that's when we really start to see this, and the kind of the rest of the movie is about that is about his like martyr complex. Uh, so a man tells Bill that his taxi is at the door and his driver wants a word and he is led through a ballroom where there are people dancing and there's actually some gay shit going on. Thank God. There's <laughs> two men dancing uh, and one of the men is naked and there's two women dancing and one of the women is naked. Um, and Bill is actually led back into this Baroque chamber from before where everyone is staring at him in their mask is very creepy and the man in red in the center sits in the middle and tells bill to come forward and bill has been found out because this man asks him for the password for the house which is different a different password than fidelio and he obviously doesn't know it so the man tells him to remove his mask and bill does and then he tells him to get undressed and uh bill is obviously horrified and this kind of made me think like what were they gonna do (laughs) and bill is saved by the woman in the headdress who's like standing on this balcony in the mansion and she yells stop and she asks them to take her instead it's very theatrical and she says i'm which is interesting because they're all in these masks like in a play and he is she says i'm ready to redeem him And they accept her offer and they warn Bill that if he says anything about what he has seen there, that there will be dire consequences for him and his family. And the woman in the headdress is led away by someone in a plague mask. And Bill asks what's going to happen to that woman. And the man in red says, no one can change her fate now. (laughs) And I, I feel like I'm like, it just I'm detailing the plot so much, but it's all very important. It it just yes, every because this is this is where the it's reinforced that you know 
this idea that sexuality and fear and the illusion of danger that continues to be instilled throughout the film. Yes. And what I think is particularly, you know, this is something that just thinking about Tom Cruise in general, who's like problematic in so many ways, (laughs) but this is, you know, you think about Tom Cruise in a film like Eyes Wide Shut and you're like, oh, this is different. But in this scene, you really see that, you know, there's this idea that Tom Cruise always plays Tom Cruise. Mm. And he's someone who spends his day pretending to be someone else until he is unmasked. And you see that in in this character in this scene as well. Mm. Yeah. And he arrives home kind of rattled and hides his costume and Bill walks in on Alice. I love whenever Nicole Kidman is in this movie. Yeah. And Bill walks in on Alice laughing in her sleep and wakes her up. And Alice tells Bill that she had a dream that they were naked in the woods, kind of like Adam and Eve. And she was mad at Bill and he went to get their clothes. And the naval officer from the hotel appeared and start, stared at her and laughed at her. And then they started kissing and the dream evolved into an orgy where Alice was fucking a ton of other men. And Bill was watching while she wanted to make fun of him and laugh at him and laugh in his face. So that's when she started laughing in her dream. So it's kind of like... Alice was having her own orgy moment at the same time, but just in her dream at the same time that Bill was, except hers is actually fulfilled. Yes. And Bill goes, so now it's morning and everything is very different in the morning. Uh, Bill goes by the Sonata Cafe to find Nick, but it's closed. He goes to the diner next door to ask the waitress. This... I found the day really, the daytime really interesting because at night, Bill is like totally, um, he's not suave. Like he's scared. He's neurotic. Whereas in the daytime, it's kind of like his turf. And now he's like, yes, trying to seduce women. Yes. He goes from unfocused to focused from night to day. Yes. And he's, like, kind of flirting with this waitress, and he asks the waitress if he, if she knows where Nick is, uh, and he uses his doctor chops to get the address to where Nick is staying, and he goes by the hotel and talks to Alan Cumming, <laughs> who is the like... front desk guy, and... Um, I have a note here that was, is there gay subtext here? Or is it just because Alan Cumming is here? <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like Nick is, starts flirting with everyone in the daytime mm-hmm. to get information. I feel like he's flirting with Alan Cumming a little bit. Like, you know, what did you see? Like, he's just very charming now. Mm-hmm. Whereas at night he was not. Yes. It's almost like he knows how to use sex appeal during the day. Yes. And at night, it's he's devoid. Well, when he can show off that he's a doctor, which is more acceptable during the daytime, then yes. he feels more confident. And what's really interesting to me is this is kind of where you see there's a, there's a lot of between the, the kind of orgy fantasy world of the day. There class is explored because he can leverage his class as a doctor during the day but in the evening you're exposed to a class of people that have access 
to permanent residency of this other fantasy world mm-hmm. and he's kind of reconciling that after all he is a member of the serving class yes that there's still a there's an echelon above him that can achieve what he cannot yes he's not quite elite he still has to work whereas the elite do not have to work exactly and then in the more plebeian world he can leverage his class yes like amongst the waitress charm during the day that he cannot turn on at night yes exactly like and, and he leverages over the work working class uh, yes. the waitress the bell the bellhop like mm-hmm. he feels he, he absolutely is such a smart observation uh so bill had oh alan coming tells bill that nick was escorted out of the hotel by two big burly men and he had a bruise on his cheek and he looked scared so Bill heads back to the Rainbow Fashions to return his costume. He finds that his mask is missing. And Milich's daughter, Lily Sobieski, I'm very hung up on that. That is Lily Sobieski, comes out of a room with the two men from last night. And it seems now that Milich is allowing his daughter to kind of slut around. And Bill is horrified and asks how this is possible. And Millage says things change and they have come to another arrangement and implies that he's kind of like selling his daughter off. Mm-hmm. And he also implies that Bill could have his daughter if he wants for a price. And Lily smiles very cryptically. And Bill is like totally horrified. And he's horrified by the the perversity of this and by the daughter's kind of relishing it it's i mean it's quite disturbing <laughs> i find this that this dynamic to be one of the more disturbing ones in the film uh, agreed and it's you know when you first see it you're like oh okay this is very you know it could be seen as something that's sex positive right she wants <clears throat> to be sexual sexually liberated but at what cost right right and again sex is transaction a lot of sex work stuff in the film uh bill is at work and he's still haunted by the image of alice with the officer uh bill leaves work and he drives back to the mansion from last night and a creepy man with white hair and glasses hands him a note that says give up your inquiries which are completely useless and consider these words a second warning we hope for your own good that this will be sufficient something i'm very struck by with these guys these uh masked masked guys is how well spoken they are and it really and alan cumming makes a point of saying that when they came in they were huge guys but they were very well spoken Mm -hmm. and it really kind of emphasizes that class those class dynamics again Mm -hmm. like these are not these are not like thugs with no power these are very powerful people yes So Bill goes home and he tries to enjoy domestic bliss, but can't stop thinking about Alice's nightmare. And he needs to keep, I kind of read this as like, he needs to keep pursuing the mystery of the party because he feels emasculated by Alice's desires. Mm -hmm. And he needs to have like his own thing going on where he can see himself as a savior of some kind. Yes. And he sees these people who, and seem you know, the two men before who, who know what they want 
and know how to get what they want, know how to say what they want to say. And I think he feels that is his objective to get to that place as well. Mm, yeah. He's struggling to be that person throughout the whole film. Right. He's back at work and he cannot stop thinking about Alice with the officer again. And he calls Marion, but Carl answers and he hangs up. I thought that was interesting. I was like, what's he trying to do with Marion? Like mm-hmm. it's, it, you know, she really kind of confirms his, status as like this attractive desirable man because it you know we kind of feel like she has there's like some kind of transference going on where she like thinks that she loves him because he's a doctor and he cared for her father and mm-hmm. it's kind of some daddy issues stuff um that, that there's a that is like the freudian element of the film right yes. yeah and he's calling her because she'll like validate that uh, so Bill goes to Domino's apartment again, somebody else who validated him and brings her these pastries <laughs> and her roommate answers and says she's not in. And she says, you're the Bill and invites him in and Bill and the roommate start to flirt. This is so strange. Bill starts caressing her and undressing her. He's very smooth now, whereas mm-hmm. before he was so bumbling and he, I guess he just feels like he needs to conquer someone. Like, it doesn't really matter who it is. Like, he's tried Marion, he's tried Domino, now the roommate. Yes, and this is somebody he, you know, taking it back to class, is above. Right. And more dominant than. Yes. However, I would also go to say that they're both members of the serving class, but yeah, but in his mind that yeah, is he he sees a difference between them. Mm-hmm. Bill and the uh, or so the roommate stops him and says she needs to tell him something, and she because he was with Domino last night, so she doesn't know that they didn't have sex. She thinks that they did, mm-hmm. and she lets him know that Domino is HIV positive. That she's just found out that she's HIV positive. So he's foiled from having sex once again. This movie is like one long blue ball. Absolutely. And it's, it also this also reinforces that that death, uh, the sex is death. Death is always one step away in, in this scene as well. Because at that time, um, you know, HIV was very much considered a death sentence. For yes. A lot of- in a lot in the eyes of many people yeah i found the addition of hiv to be very interesting like very of the time yes it, it very much yes is a time capsule for the film in, in a certain way and it also highlights the the sexual transgression of sex work and it also recalls the homophobic harassment from earlier so yes. it kind of ties all that stuff back up together um so bill leaves and he he notices that he's being followed by a man on the street which is shockingly empty for new york and he grabs a newspaper from a newsstand and ducks into a coffee shop to get away from this man 
And the newspaper says in huge letters on the front, lucky to be alive. (laughs) And Bill turns to an article that says ex-beauty queen dead from drug overdose and realizes that this might be the woman from the holiday party, Mandy, and the woman from the orgy. So she might have been one in the same. So Bill, he goes back to the hospital to confirm. And Mandy, Amanda Curran, did in fact die that afternoon. And he goes to see her body in the morgue and is shaken. And this is, we only see this woman naked. And again, the 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 connection here between death and sex is very evident. Like, we see her in the beginning of the film almost dying mm-hmm. naked. We see her sacrificing herself at this orgy naked. And now we see her dead naked body. Yes. So he assumes that she has been murdered because of him like she sacrificed herself and this is that was her fate uh he gets a call from ziggler man from the beginning and goes back to his huge new york mansion so we're back where we started and ziggler tells bill that he knows what happened last night and knows what's been going on since then And he says that Bill has the wrong idea about a few things. Uh, He says that he was there at the orgy and he saw everything that went on. And he says he had Bill followed all day and that Nick is fine. Everything is fine. And they put him on a plane back to Seattle and that there were powerful people at that party. And it was easy to see that Bill was an outsider. So he kind of pokes pokes at the class differences there because Mm -hmm. he says everybody arrives in a limo and you arrive in a a taxi Mm -hmm. and you also had like a rental costume like you didn't have a, a real costume yes so bill asks about mandy at and ziggler says she was a hooker And that entire interaction was staged to keep him quiet about where he'd been and what he'd seen. But that the woman in the morgue was the woman at the party, but there's no connection between them. There's no connection between her death and the the party. Mm -hmm. And he says about her, it was always going to be a matter of time with her, which I found so disturbing. Like, just the complete disposability of... The serving class, which Bill is a part of, but doesn't see himself as part of. I also wanted to ask you, do we believe Ziggler? Do you think, is this true? That that it was staged? Yes, that it's not real. No, I do not believe that's true. And I believe that somebody who has access to the class of people that in the fantasy world they can they can get away with these with things like the death of of mandy and even people like bill that it's all an illusion because all bill knows about this fantasy world is that it's it's fraught and he doesn't know what's real anymore. Yes, he's super gaslighting, kind of the way he was gaslighting his wife in the beginning. Yes. And and 
he is in a position to to be manipulated. And I think he's also in a position. I think Ziegler has also caught him in a position where he is ripe to want to believe that that is true. It is easier for him to believe that that is true. Right. Yeah, I absolutely think that they killed this woman. <laughs> like, it's, I don't know, it's just such, it's one of those weird, ambiguous things in the movie. Um, but yes, I think that these people are extremely powerful and uh, that, you know, they knew that she already had drug problems. I think that they're the reason she has drug issues. I think you know, at that, I think that's kind of like alluded to that she is this, it, it's very Illuminati. Like, mm-hmm. she was this beauty queen, which, you know, I, I mean, I'm not one for conspiracy theories, but there is that conspiracy theory that like beauty queens are fun, are oh, kind of a, like a sex ring that where women are funneled into, yes. you know, elite prostitution for the upper class. Uh, so all of those connections are there. Uh, Bill and in this, oh, go ahead. these scenes that kind of follow one another, where you find out about the HIV positive status, and then you find out about the OD, um, and that you know gives us that sex is death perspective. I can't help but feel like with these women who are more transgressive. Um, in, in the eyes of dominant culture in paralleled with this idea of Alice who also is is transgressing the institution of marriage by having fantasies is do these women Do- Domino and Mandy kind of occupy the position that Bill ultimately wanted Alice in for having these fantasies that he almost wished death upon her Mm. and i I thought i just thought that that was something i kind of thought about oh absolutely and they all kind of look the same so it very there's like a lot of doppelganger stuff going on here too and then there's also like the tears of like equating all female sexuality as sex work like and there's tears of it like there's domino who is like a a poor sex worker who only charges 150 dollars and doesn't keep track of the time like 150 is it for the whole time and she's a street-based sex worker um and then there's mandy who is like an elite sex worker yes an, an elite escort and then there's Nicole Kidman, who is a wife and mother uh, of a a rich doctor, but is 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 kind of being equated to her labor is being equated to sex labor. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of dichotomies, but also a lot of uh, analogies between uh-huh. the women. So. Bill comes home and he sees Alice sleeping next to the missing Venetian mask and he sobs uncontrollably and Alice wakes up and sees him sobbing and Bill says, I'll tell you everything. And I was, my note here is just straight people. (laughs) So next we see Alice and Bill exhausted and 
you know, crying in the morning and they've obviously stayed up all night talking about this. And Alice says Helena, their daughter, will be awake soon and is going to expect them to go Christmas shopping. And I also have a note that says, what a fucking nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Like, going Christmas shopping after staying up all night arguing with your partner, like, kill me. (laughs) Yeah, bracket everything yeah so we see the family in the chaotic toy store probably fao schwartz and alice what uh, bill says alice what do you think we should do and this is a very interesting scene that they have uh and she says maybe i think we should be grateful that we've managed to survive through all of our adventures whether they were real or only a dream so she's equating her dream her of getting fucked by all these men to Bill's adventure mm-hmm. and she says the reality of one night can never be the whole truth and no one dream is ever just a dream and I uh, I don't want to say for sure because I haven't read the novella in, in a few years but I'm pretty sure like a lot of this is lifted mm-hmm. exactly from the novella if I remember correctly and she says, the important thing is we're awake now and hopefully for a long time to come. And Bill says, you know, he tries to push her to say, like, forever. Like, they're going to be together forever. And Alice says, doesn't want to use that word because it frightens her. And she says, but I do love you. And you know there's something very important that we need to do as soon as possible. <laughs> and Bill says, what's that? And she says, Fuck. And, and it goes right to the credit. Yes, goes right to the credit. And it isn't until the end of the film where then we're introduced to the perspective of sex as love. Yes. But I do find it that with a film that's so complicated that that end is that that being the perspective of the end is so uncomplicated. Yeah, we gotta fuck. <laughs> and, you know, but I do find that after everything like bill still remains so enclosed and like unable to access a healthy view of sex and his relationship with his wife like i'm not sure he learned anything from this experience right it's i guess what they both learned is that like they want to be together and it confirmed that for them i don't know it's very like sterile it, it is for something that's that's what i found that the 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 the, the end is so bland and conservative which is like ant- antithetical to the the whole body of the film which is right. fantasy on top of fantasy um right we're back in reality which is indicated by them being with their child in this horrible toy store like we're back into the minutia of married life like we were in the beginning when Nicole Kidman was peeing on the toilet like it's we're back we're back from the fantasy like it I guess it's kind of like you can only have so much of that it it scared them surprise this is where the rainbow ends right well all of their like fantasies and adventures it scared them like it wasn't it wasn't like identity affirming and like you know sexy and 
torrid. Like it was, you know, the the separation of these two people from their domestic bliss into uh like a more self-actualized sexual desire realm and it they couldn't ha- really handle it and now they're they've come back together and they are going to continue on doing what they were doing so i mean it's like in a way kind of like a con- condemnation of it <laughs> like uh kind of a cynical view of sex and relationships yes and the tension between love and desire i really feel like you know i come back i talked about this in the beginning was that the film kind of encapsulates this everything we've learned about sex within the discourse of around sexuality in the 20th century and your the movie kind of takes a, you through that like this journey of a portrait of a mortal cu- like a mortal couple through the point of view of the vastness of that discourse of the 20th century and then it's like oh after all of that those theories from freud to foucault like here we are just in a toy store and it's at the end of the day just pretty boring yeah. and uncomplicated <laughs> yep yeah yeah it's there's there's so much there that to then just be in this very normal conservative space is so, is so interesting it's like all of that for what absolutely and they both embody like western heteropatriarchal ideas of like a beautiful person of their gender like mm-hmm. nicole is this skinny white woman and tom cruise is this like kind of you know masculine like good-looking smooth man uh very kind of like greek ideal almost in a way and the the sex that they have that we see them having in the movie is so uh sterile in the in a way that the orgy was and it's not really about sex at all like in a way it can never be erotic because there's nothing fucking wrong with them like it's they're just like facsimiles of people (laughs) in a way and I really do think that it one of the themes it touches on is is the limits of the imagination for a lot of people. And in in this film, it's like it it never pushes past that, that, that there are limits to the sexual imagination, despite there being so many different avenues one can take to explore that. It's it's really about. If, if you want to permeate those limits, you need to be able to let go of your anxiety and your, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff too around, and your disgust around sex. I think it still portrays sex as this um, disgusting, kind of shameful th- act. Right. Which, which in that way doesn't make the film particularly sexually revolutionary to me yeah i mean it's interesting because like the erotic thriller in general like explores so many of our cultural anxieties around sex Mm -hmm. and this definitely does that like i don't think i think that people get it i think the marketing for this film as an erotic film is 
you know, obviously to get people to go to the movie, but I, it's, it's essentially very, you know, not ironic in a lot of ways. Um, yes, I agree. So that was Eyes Wide Shut. We did it. We did it. <laughs> we got Thank through this. Thank you so much for, for having me. And I've had a lot of fun talking about this film with you. And you know, what's so interesting is that for, for a while, I really saw this as a, a favorite film of mine. And then, you know, knowing what I know now and all the different, um, you know, areas of sexual transgression I have explored in, you know, in my academic and, and hobby-esque journeys, uh, I, I don't find it to be very compelling anymore. Really? That's interesting. I still, I still really love it. Um, but perhaps that's because I never viewed it as particularly, uh, I kind of always felt this way about it. Like it was about the, the, the stifling of, of oneself and, uh, yeah it's I don't know it's interesting like I still find it I still find it really compelling but maybe more in like a, a historical sense than in yes, like that, thematically yes, it, it's definitely captures the the 20th century and and for that I find it, it important yeah absolutely and it would be interesting to have seen what Kubrick would make after this um, yes and I do think that there's something really beautiful about his last film making you know the bedroom his final frontier and i I do appreciate that totally yes so where can people find you on social media if you want them to people can find me on social media on instagram is the only platform i'm on my handle is at lavender double underscore archivist Amazing. And you know where to find me. Twitter and Instagram, Girls Guts Giallo. Subscribe to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Girls Guts Giallo. Uh, really special bonus episode coming for you in January during the break between seasons. The Patreon will still be active. So uh, check that out. And thank you again, Cooper. This was great. Thank you.